Well, today, I want to continue the series I started last weekend on the keys to unity, and we talked a great deal about pride uh, in that sermon, and number two is going to be dealing with the past. So you already have the title, Diane, ahead of time. Wow. I want to begin today in Philippians 3, beginning in verse 13. Philippians 3.13, Paul speaking to the Philippians, saying, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. Isn't that interesting, the way he puts this? This one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before me. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I give great emphasis on leaving those things in the past which are behind. This one thing I do. It sounds like it's a very preeminent thing in his thinking. Now we talk a great deal about unity in the greater church of God. And among ourselves here, we have been scattered and split and torn and ripped and rended until many, many organizations exist, and many small organizations and some large organizations, and even those seem to be being rent apart even as we speak today. On a day which commemorates Acts 2, all of God's people meeting together in one accord, in unity and harmony, and love and peace with one goal and one purpose in mind. Why were they at one accord? Well, for one thing, Christ had only left about 50 days before, and there were very few of them. And as we heard yesterday, he came back about 10 times to remind them and to help bring them along because he knew Pentecost was coming and they needed to be at one accord. Now, one of the other reasons they were at one accord is because there had not yet been time for discord, because it came relatively soon after that. Ananias and Sapphira, Simon Magus, um, division split schisms in the Corinthian church that Paul had to deal with, uh, Paul and Barnabas not getting along at times, Paul and Peter being uh, upset with one another from time to time. All kinds of problems came in the New Testament church after they had all been at one accord. And we were to a great degree at one accord 15 or 20 years ago in God's church, maybe not as much as we thought, but at least we were all in one body. Talk is cheap. We talk a great deal about unity and how we would like to have unity again and peace in the church of God. How much? are we willing to pay? What's the price? Now, you and I have some treasured memories, brethren, and they're on the wrong side of the fence because we still talk a great deal about people's past problems, ministers' past problems, past sins of any and everyone that we know anything about, that we have the dirt on whether it be our mate, whether it be a molester of us as when we were a child, an aunt or an uncle or a father or a stepfather or whatever it might have been, 
because we feel we were mistreated as children by our own parents in some way. We have these memories and we cherish them because when we want a pity party for little old me, it's easy to drag them out and get ourselves into a funk about the past and blame our problems on someone else. So these are things that we have cherished. We have treasured the sins of other people. Now we sang in these hymns in the very beginning, Forgive me, O God, my iniquities, Psalm 51, and, and then uh, 110 and various other ones we sang. Did we sing one about forgive so-and-so here, their iniquities? Paul tells us as husbands to love our wives and be not bitter against them. What is bitterness? To me, it's reflective of something in the past, something that occurred 40 seconds ago or 30 years ago or however long you take it back. It's something that happened back there that you are still bitter about, upset about, frustrated about, something you have not turned loose of. It's still there to be brought up in times of argument, in times of vengeance, in times of stress on the marriage. If there is ammunition, ready to go, you got it all loaded and ready. You're just waiting for the emotional spark to set the powder off. And boy, can the past boil up so rapidly. And you can both remember it so fast, you're both firing at the same time. <laughs> And no sense is made of it. You treasured those, haven't you? Some of those things from the past. Maybe you didn't think of them as treasure. But you certainly protected and coddled them and kept them and held them. Because they're convenient at times to use against someone else. Let's go to James 3 now. James 3. And let's begin in verse 13. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Who is a wise man among us? Let's, let's get personal about this. Let him show out of a good conduct his works with meekness of wisdom, but if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. Bitter envyings about things that were done for somebody else, favoritism shown to someone else in the past. You didn't get ordained as a deacon. You didn't get to marry the person you wanted to because John did it, or David or somebody. What, what do you have in the back of your mind that you have bitter envying towards someone else about? There would be teachers, preachers, all through the church today who are bitter about not being advanced in the past and not only are they bitter and frustrated about it they've appointed themselves teachers raised themselves up despite the fact that god says be very careful about that a wise man puts away those bitter envyings ephesians 4 ephesians 4 let's go to Verse 9 here.
Wait a minute. Is that what I wanted? 29. I'm sorry. Ephesians 4, 29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good for the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you were sealed of the day of redemption. Now here's the instruction. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you along with all malice. And be you kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Did you deserve forgiven by Jesus Christ? Of course not. You deserve to die for what you've done. But he forgave us anyway. And he says that we have to do that to each other. Now you think about it while we discuss this today. Are there any people in your background, business associates in the past, friends, ex-wives, ex-husbands, uh, ex-stepchildren, <laughs> on and on it goes, fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, ex-friends, but all their names, all that has to happen is their name to come up, and wham, your head is full of things of the past, 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, they're still there. Now, he says, put it away. Well, let me save that comment for later. Romans 3, and then I'll probably forget it, so don't worry about that comment anyway. <laughs> we'll move on here first. Romans 3, and beginning in verse 10. Romans 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. None of us can point fingers at another and say, you're a sinner and I'm not. There is none that understands, there is none that seeks after God. We don't really, we may partially, but we don't with all our hearts. I know we don't. And I see the truth all around me and I see it in me. They are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable. Verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, so why should one sinner compare himself to another sinner and say, you're blacker than me? Because that's automatically what we do. It goes back to what we were talking about with pride. What does it do when you talk to someone about another person's sins? It places you just a little bit higher in your own mind and emotions than they are because you are putting yourself here looking down at them. I, I'm sure we don't recount anyone else's sin to build them up, do we? I don't recall ever having heard that happen. <laughs> Maybe you do, but I, when I lose my tongue and I talk about somebody and put them down for their past sins, that's exactly what I'm doing, is raising me up a notch and putting them down a notch, or three if I can. That's just the way it works. Our goal is oneness, unity, and harmony with God and man. That's what the Ten Commandments are all about. Hebrews 12:15. I won't turn to, but you remember the story of Esau who had bitterness about the past. And even though he sought it diligently and carefully with prayer and tears, 
He could not get over that bitterness about the disrespect he had shown for his heritage and this bitter envying that he had toward Jacob as a result of Jacob's more or less, well, he didn't really steal it, but he did sort of by chicanery. But Esau accepted his price. He sold it cheaply. And disrespecting that was more important to God than the fact that Jacob used the chicanery with it. The sin was worse. And partly the reason it was worse was because of what it did to Esau. He could never, and has never to this day, gotten over that bitter envying that he holds toward Jacob. And Obadiah shows very clearly that the end time, Esau and Edom will be there to cut us off at the pass, even when we go to a place of safety. Speaking spiritually of the church, and they are there also to cut off physical Israel. God said that that's the way it would be. Herbert Armstrong, I heard say many, many times, the hardest thing for anyone to overcome is bitterness about the past. Or any kind of bitterness. Because it's, it is so deep-seated in us. So this is not a light subject. It's not an easy subject. But it is a very important subject according to Paul. And we'll see that it is according to God as well. Now I'll ask you two questions. Do you love God? I won't ask you to show your hand. But I would bet everyone here feels that they have a love for God. I mean, otherwise you'd be at the racetrack or somewhere today. But you have that view of yourself that you love God. Let's ask another question. Are you angry or bitter against anyone for things past? That's not a trick question, but it's a bold one, and it's a hard one. And you might say, my relationship with God is fine. It's men I have problems with, or women, or woman, or man, depends on how much you want to define it here. Let's go to John 13. John 13. And beginning in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, forgiving you your disgusting, black, nasty sins, and having a warmth and love and kindness and grace and mercy toward you. That's the way he loved us. That you also love one another. Now here's a defining verse. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have loved one to another. This is all tied together, as we will see, that you cannot love God unless you love man. It's impossible. Whether you think so or not, and I think I can prove that here very shortly. 1 John 4, 1 John 4, Beginning in verse 11. <clears throat> Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwells in us, and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwells in him and he in God. 
Let's go to verse 17. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he, as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear has torment. He that fears is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Or we love, since the, not is not in the, or the hymn is not in the Greek, we love because he first loved us. Now here it is. If a man say, didn't we all just sort of agree that we love God? If a man say, I love God, and hates his brother, doesn't say which brother, any brother, he is a liar. For he that loves not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loves God love his brother also. They are tied together in the Ten Commandments so closely, the first four toward God, the last six toward man. You cannot separate that. So if you sit here and affirm that you love God, and you carry anger, rancor, hate, bitterness towards someone else, you may be a liar. I didn't call you one, but John, sure getting close to your toes here. Now let's go to Matthew 6. Matthew 6. And let's go to verse 14 when we get there. Matthew 6 and verse 14. <clears throat> For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Those are clear, direct, absolute words from Jesus Christ himself. And he means it. This is part of his initial, strongest, deepest, probably, sermon he ever gave. And I don't think you can even argue the Greek here. I mean, this, is just, this is it. How many times have you prayed that God would forgive me? How many times have you prayed that God would show mercy on me? How many times on my knees do I pray that God have mercy on me compared to how often I ask God to have mercy on you? Now, I probably know my sins a little better than I know yours, but not a whole lot because we're all just alike. It's common to man. Let's go to James 2. <clears throat> James 2, verse 13. For he, speaking of God, shall have judgment without mercy that has showed no mercy. And mercy rejoices against judgment. Maybe you were molested as a child. That is a heinous, horrible, despicable crime that minds sometimes of children completely block out and they won't even remember it like a horrible accident or something. Your mind cannot deal with it. 
maybe 20, 30, 40 years later, sitting on some shrink's couch, it'll begin to come out, and the mind will begin to remember. So heinous, so horrible. And some people spend their whole lives emotionally bound up and stressed out over such a horrible thing. But you have to turn it loose. You have to let it go. That bitterness, that rancor, has to leave before we can have unity among ourselves and with God. Didn't I say this was hard? Now, most of us may not have something quite that bad in our background, but some of us do, right here in this room, right here on this telephone I've had. But all of us have something that we've had trouble dealing with. And maybe we haven't dealt with it. And that's why I want to speak about it, because we talk about unity and we want unity, but maybe we haven't dealt with the past yet. Maybe we've thought about it, maybe we've tried, but maybe we're not there. Let's hit one more on this line of thinking in Titus 1. It must have been a real problem with people back then, just like it is today. Because it's mentioned here and there throughout the Bible. Titus 1 and verse 16. They profess that they know God, just as you and I do. But in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient, and do every good work reprobate. Now we'll see that good works are involved in this as well here in a moment. Now sometimes we wonder why our prayers are not answered, don't we? Sometimes our prayers seem to be answered. Sometimes they obviously are answered. Sometimes it seems like we're talking to the ceiling tile or the rug. And we don't seem to get answers. Well, there could be many, many reasons God is not giving a particular answer to us. But one that we need to consider is that our prayers just might be an abomination to God. Now, can you get your mind and emotions around that, you who say you love God? Can you even imagine that when you get on your knees and pray to God, that that could be an abomination to Him? The abomination of the mouth will be destroyed. Now, let's see how that could be. Proverbs 28. Proverbs 28 and verse 9. He that turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be abomination. You turn your ear from hearing the law of God. God says, your prayer is a stench to him. Now let's go to Matthew 26 and tie that together with this. Matthew 26, verse 36. Wait a minute, that's not the one I wanted. Where am I supposed to be here? Well, if I don't know, you probably don't. Where did I do? I, I'm, I'm looking for uh, the commandments of God and ignoring them. I was going to tie this together and make a really neat point. 
2236, thank you. I knew somebody could read my muddy mind, or knew the Bible well enough to uh, come up with it. Matthew 22:36, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So if we deny the last six by hating, by showing rancor, bitterness, envy, from past deeds on our brother, we're not forgiving, we're not keeping the law, and he says if you bypass the law, your prayer becomes an abomination. So this becomes a very key and central point to unity with God and unity with man. But what about old so-and-so, and they had a really bad sin? I mean, you know, this wasn't a little white lie, or this wasn't something that, you know, we can sort of forgive somebody for. John 8, I won't turn to that one. You know about the woman taking an adultery? That's the biggie, you know. Any sin but that can be forgiven. Even murder, perhaps, but not that. Now, what did, what did Christ say? Now, this wasn't a rumor, either, about this lady. This was first-hand evidence caught him in the act. Christ said, where are those who condemn you? After he wrote in the sand, I don't know what he wrote, but it sure made them slink away with their tail between their legs. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Do we have to put someone out of the church because of that? That sin? Not necessarily. They haven't repented yet. But if they show the fruits of repentance, Christ said, I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, do you agree with Christ? Do you go along with his way of thinking? Or do we tend to hold some sins worse than others? And worse, certainly worth remembering 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years later. When that name comes up, bam. Now, we've already said and seen, Christ said, if you don't forgive them, you will not be forgiven. Now, that makes the relationship between you and me pretty important, doesn't it? Because it destroys the relationship with God. Now, let's go to Matthew 5. Matthew 5. Again, the words of Jesus Christ himself. Verse 43. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Now what do we tend to do by nature? Well, if we're not actively fighting with someone, we would choose usually to at least ignore them. Hope they'll go away. Hope they'll leave us alone. But this is a positive thing God says to do. This is a sin of commission. I mean, a, uh, a thing, thing that he commissions us to do is to actually do good to those. How often we fall short of that. It's easy to hate your enemies. 
it's easy to ignore your enemies to some degree. But to actually do good to them, to try to gain them back as a brother, you see the seeds of unity are pretty strong in here. Because if you ignore them, you'll never be close again. But if you take the outward action of seeking to gain them back, of doing good to them, praying for them, helping them, you're going to have to bite back some attitudes. And you're going to have to make those overt attempts. Now, maybe you can't talk to them. Maybe they won't even speak to you. I heard recently that someone heard I was coming to town and might be speaking. and said, I'm not even going if he's going to be there. Made me feel good when I heard it. <laughs> I don't know who it was. I didn't inquire, and I will not inquire. But wouldn't it be awful if whoever that was missed out on the kingdom of God over me? God says, if you have an enemy, send them flowers. Buy them a bag of groceries. For a couple of little examples. Let me think about this. Now, if everybody who hated me sent me flowers, I could open a mortuary. <laughs> or maybe if they sent me a bag of groceries, I could open a supermarket. For I have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And in my 45 years associated with the Church of God, I have probably offended and hurt a lot of people. And some of them have memories like elephants. I can't blame them in one sense. I did it! I hurt them! I offended them! I trumped on them! In one way or another. But they got to get over it. I'm sorry. All I can do is apologize, and if I can find them, maybe I can apologize personally. But the thing is, I don't even know who all my enemies are. I could probably, well, let's don't get into a list here. I could probably think of some of them, but there's a lot. Some we don't even know, do we, brethren? We've offended people we have no idea we ever offended. I was thinking about this last night in my bed. And I thought of a fellow that I, as a brash young club director when I was about 23 years old, down in Miami. The guy used a colloquialism of some kind. And I don't do this very often and didn't then. I, you know, I'll salvage a little pride here. It's not my style, though, to jump all over people very often. But I got all over that fellow because of the way he used that colloquialism and it didn't make a lot of sense to me at the time and perhaps I just wanted to tee off on him for some reason. And he may have forgotten it by now. But it is clear as crystal in my mind and I'd like to say, you know, I'm really sorry for what I said to you that day in that evaluation. I was too hard. I was too harsh. Now, that was a, an object lesson for me and I hope that I've kept from repeating that too often. But we have these things back there. And that wasn't even one of my worst. What is Christ's attitude? You know, when you get on your knees and you feel so miserable and so pitiful and so wretched and so sinful before your God, and every one of us does or we wouldn't be here, we hope that he forgives us, don't we? 
We plead with God to forgive us, like David did in Psalm 51. Boy, we want the slate clean with God. But we better be sure we're doing our homework. Because he says, I'll ignore you unless you do this with your brother. He says he'll remove our sins as far as the east is from the west. That's, that's endless. He says they will never even be mentioned to us again. When you rise to meet him in the air, and you're changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, Jesus Christ, your Lord and Master, High Priest, King and Ruler, and Husband, will not ever mention any of your sins to you. He's not going to sit you down and go over every sin you ever committed and say, well, that's why you're a doorkeeper here. No, you're the bride. You're his wife. Now, how would it start a marriage if you got married and you sat down and said, I've been talking to your aunts, I've been talking to your uncle, I've been talking to all your friends, and you've got a lot of problems, honey. <laughs> now, let's go through the list. Now, this marriage would get off to a rip-roaring start. And I mean roaring. And ripping. <laughs> Christ isn't going to do that to you and me. Absolutely not. But there can never be unity in the kingdom of God or here until we have removed and squelched and put behind us the past. That's why Paul said, this one thing I do. Now let's go to Luke, 20, Luke, Luke 6. Luke 6. And begin in verse 27. Jesus Christ again. But I say to you which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you. Bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. Those who can't stand your guts. This is how God says to react to them. This is a tall order. To them that smites you on one cheek, offer the other. Now there's one we spiritualize away sometimes. <laughs> I mean, would anyone actually do that? It's instruction from Jesus Christ. Take your pick. Now, what is Christ saying? If we treat people like hogsflop, he will treat us like hogsflop. If we treat them lovingly, kindly, mercifully, he'll treat us that way. It's automatic. Axiomatic. It's just the way that it is. How do you want God to judge you when you get on your knees? Man, I cry for mercy. I cry for it a lot. Because I need a lot. And I need to learn to love you as much as I love me. That's another tall order. But recounting someone's past automatically puffs us up and lifts us up in pride and self-exaltation. You know what? God resists the proud. He resists the proud. He holds them off. He turns away. 
I posed the question at the end of the sermon last week after showing how much pride we have and I said, what's a God to do? Or what is God to do? Because there's really only one. But I use the takeoff on, you know, what's a person to do? What's a wife to do? So what's a God to do? What is his solution to the problem? I will spew you out of my mouth. I will blow you apart. And we've talked about that a lot the last two or three years, so I'm not going to go into a lot of it. But we are right in the middle of it. We are being chastened for our lukewarmness, for our lack of love and consideration toward one another, and for being selfish and materialistic, and all those things that we spiritually have done. And along with it comes the hatred, the bitterness, the rancor. We all came out of worldwide with war stories, didn't we? Boy, them preachers. <laughs> Hate them preachers. Think I'll be one. <laughs> Ironic, isn't it? They all done us wrong. <laughs> somebody done somebody wrong song. Well, they did. That's a fact. Ezekiel 33, 34, Jeremiah 23, all those scriptures are there. Malachi. Yes, they did do you wrong. But do you still maintain bitter enviness, envying and hatred toward them? There's a lot of it in the greater church of God today. There's a lot of bitterness and rancor against Herbert Armstrong. We'll talk about that in a minute. God says he <clears throat> will knock us down until there's not one stone left on top of another. Matthew 24, 2 until we get rid of this kind of an attitude. Now, does that mean that God is going to get rid of all organizations? Does that mean, is that what that's talking about? No hierarchy of any kind left? Well, maybe, maybe not. It might not be the end of organization, because God is an organized being. He believes in organization. But it has to be an organization that is truly humble that does not lift itself above other organizations or other people and say, I am this and you are that. That has to go. He who exalts himself will be abased. There's no getting around it. So if an organization is truly humble and does not lift himself above another organization, then maybe that organization is safe. Because it's the lifting above that creates the problem and has to be knocked down. It isn't organization that's the problem, it's misuse. It's wrong attitude that has to go away. Pride has to go. And any organization is only a composite of its individual members' attitudes. What it is. This organization right here that we have is no better than the composite of your attitudes and mine thrown together and lifting either a stench or a perfume to God. Is it an incense or what is it? Well, if we lift ourselves above anyone else, it's hogswell to God. Do we wrangle over the past about things that were done wrong to us by the church? We have to move past those war stories. Maybe we felt we had to get into them to some degree to, to cleanse the slate. I don't know. 
But I know people who are still hanging on to them, and every time I talk to this particular person, boy, they'll go right back to all those things in the past. We came out first. We came out most. There are a lot of ways you can put it. We are the best. I think we're much better off with the publicans pose than we are with the Pharisees pose. Pride or humility is not something you possess. Now, here again, let's ask ourselves a question. Are you humble? Are you proud? Well, of course not. Well, I'm kind of humble. I mean, you're not going to come out and just say, even in your own mind sitting there, yeah, of course I'm humble. I'm proud of it. <laughs> you, you, you can't say it, can you? It's not something you possess. Pride or humility is a moment-to-moment -moment choice of how you will react. Sometimes you react pridefully, and sometimes you catch yourself and react humbly. But it's something you have to be on top of every waking moment, because your thoughts are not the thoughts of Christ. And it is so natural to react in pride at anyone who does you wrong in any way they choose to do it, or even if you think they did. It is pride. It is vanity. It is vengeance to hold the past over someone's head. Now, this HWA bashing, I heard someone the other day who had been one, in my mind, of the people that I had known. This was one of the people who was one of the starkest followers of Herbert Armstrong I ever knew in my life. And they said to me, why do you stick so close to Herbert Armstrong's stuff? He didn't even understand the spirit of the law. And I just, please, let's go back to Isaiah 5. Let's get off this thing. Isaiah 5. Now will I sing to my well-beloved the song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. Now you could say that this was talking about ancient Israel. But this is a principle that is laid out in Isaiah 5, that any vineyard that Christ plants, he's going to plant the same way. So whether we're talking about ancient Israel, the early New Testament church, the church in the Middle Ages, or the latter reincarnations of the church we see here at the end time, God is going to have done this same thing and done it the same way. So let's not argue about what this is talking about. It's talking about anything God has done to his vineyard at any time. And he speaks of us in John 10 as his vineyard. All right. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. Now, God planted the end-time church in a very fruitful field on a hill. He gave it, he fenced it, he gathered out stones from it, he gave it every care. Now, you and I believe we're in a part of the true church, don't we? Yes, we do. Otherwise, we certainly wouldn't be here. And where are our roots? 
They're in the vineyard planted through Herbert Armstrong. Can't deny it. Can't get away from it. Now, did God plant wild grapes, muscadines, you probably call them here, in a thorny, red clay, mineralist soil? No. He did it this way. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, the church, and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, between me and my vineyard. Now, whose fault is this, God says? What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes? What Isaiah is telling us here, or God is telling us, is that God gave us all the doctrine we needed to be part of his kingdom. He gave us all the water, the spirit, the bread, the truth that we needed. He gave us all the administration, the government, that we needed. Now we misused it and abused it. And we produced wild grapes. But what he gave us was sufficient, brethren. Now are we getting that? Are we understanding what this is saying to us? That what Herbert Armstrong was given from God was sufficient. And I believe that Herbert Armstrong will be part of the kingdom of God based on his understanding of the truth and based on how well he lived it. Now, I know there are books out about his sins. I've not read them, and I will not read them. Does that mean I have my head in the sand? No, my Bible tells me don't even think about them. Don't speak of these things. I know the man sinned. I even saw the man sin. I think. I saw him do things I didn't approve of at times. To me, that was sin. Now, to God, I don't know whether it was or not. I can't judge that. But I believe God worked through the man. I would not be here today if he hadn't. And God is telling us through Isaiah right here that he gave us everything we needed. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't continue to learn. But we had enough to gain salvation and to be a proper, cultivated, vineyard-producing good grace of which God could drink the wine and enjoy. That was given to us. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. What's the God to do? I will take away the heads thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down, and I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged. And there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Aren't we in a spiritual famine of the word? All ties together. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. So the church, in the end time, is his pleasant spiritual plant. He's not happy with it. And he looks for judgment, but behold, oppression. Isn't that what you and I have complained about, about them preachers? Oppression. And God says, yes, it happened. For righteousness, but behold, a cry, a wail, a hurt. 
Woe to them that join house to house, that lay field to field, till there be no place, that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. I always thought that was talking about building houses too close together in a physical basis. And indeed it does talk of that. When you cram houses too close together, people don't get along too well. So there's got to be room. Don't even lay field to field, much less house to house, he says. But what do we got now? Wall-to-wall churches, wall-to-wall houses of God, new ones cropping up all the time, so that a man has no place, <laughs> he's confused and frustrated. God wrought this on us. In my ears, says the Lord of hosts, of a truth, many houses shall be desolate, even great and fair, without inhabitation. He's talking about the church. And then he talks about famine in verse 10. They won't yield much. Do you see any church out there that's just yielding all kinds of growth and lots of grapes? It's not happening, is it? Woe to them that rise up early in the morning that they may follow strong drink. Wine of mad doctrine sometimes. Too much emphasis on my particular doctrine. This is the good one. This is the good stuff. This isn't that old stuff Herbert had. This isn't the old stuff so-and-so had. This is the good wine I got for you. This is bottled in France and it's got the little thing on the bottom, you know, where they stick it on the... and they lay it on its side. I don't know what they call that hole in the bottom of the bottle, but this isn't gallo now. I've got the good stuff for you, people say. And they're drunk on their own particular little niche with the calendar or with this or with that or something else. And without that particular little glass of wine, you've had it, buddy. Don't we see this happening? And they continue into the night. The wine inflames them, and they get so excited about it, they go to disharmony, disunity, off on their own. Every little tangent. I don't know that I need to continue this necessarily, but you see what's happening and why. We've got to get off of it, get over it. God gave us all we needed. We are the ones that blew it. And we better get back to the faith once delivered. And we better get back to the attitude once delivered. Lest we be found putting our hand to the plow and turning back. God is going to continue to destroy and scatter brethren until every knee is bowed. Every knee. Bowed or broken. Bent. He's doing it in the church, and if we don't bow now, he'll send us right on into physical tribulation, and eventually we will bow. When is up to us. We can do it now. What will it take for me? What will it take for you, for us, to start working on the log in our own eyes? and quit holding the moat in our neighbor's eyes. We do that. By dwelling on their past, we're shoving it in their face and holding it there. And we won't let them see above the moat. Now, that doesn't mean we couldn't, shouldn't be concerned for their problem. It says once you get the log out, then you can help them with the moat and help scrape it out of their eyes. But sometimes that log's pretty big. 
So we're to be concerned about their problems, but not overly concerned to the point that it becomes a downer, where we're putting them down in the eyes of other people, or trying to in God's eyes. Example, in other words, is better than lecture most any time. What I'm saying today, you can ignore pretty easily if you want to. You can even hold it against me if you want to from now on, because I stepped on your little toe. Or whichever one's under my foot, or under God's foot, really. So these are pretty plain, easy, simple things to understand. Just hard to do. Have you ever noticed how fault-finding is so easy? It's easy to look at someone else and see their faults, or at least perceive that we think they are, especially their past. Now, for 45 years, I've been associated with a church since I was about seven years old. I got to calculating on my bed last night. I was home in my own bed, and I still couldn't sleep. Uh, you, people talking about your hard motel beds. I couldn't either. But I realized as I laid there that in that 45 years, and this is, these are just rough numbers. I didn't want to really wake up and get the calculator out. But I have heard approximately 2,000 sermonettes. Approximately 2,000 sermons. I've probably preached a thousand of my own. I've read thousands, or heard thousands of te television and radio broadcasts. I've read hundreds of magazines and articles in those 45 years. At today, as I stand before you, the things I would not, I do. And the things I would do, I do not. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who can deliver me from this body of sin? But I know Jesus Christ can. At our best, we are altogether vanity. And the tongue no man can tame. Otherwise, he's a perfect man. I don't think any of us have achieved perfection yet because we still lay our tongue on each other about not only what's happening today, but what happened yesterday and 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Now, this is, this is very basic to unity. This is an important subject to God. How far will he have to scatter us? I'll tell you, as we sit here today, or as I stand here, the scattering is intensifying. It's not letting up, it's getting worse. This is the day of Pentecost. And we are doing violence to the meaning of the day of Pentecost by backbiting. I dare say that out of this group, in this room only, not on the telephone, but right here, in the last 24 to 48 hours since we started fellowshipping together, there has been more than one instance of someone recounting someone's past sins in our fellowship. Are we here all in one accord? What are we willing to pay for unity? I can preach about this till I'm blue in the face, and you can hear it until your ears are deaf. But it doesn't do a bit of good unless we do something about it. When are we going to come up against this wall and say, now is the time I am going to divorce myself from the past. I am going to turn it loose, set it aside, unhitch it, get away from it, forgive it, forget it, never bring it up again. 
I wish I could tell my wife I will never bring up a problem or a sin of yours in the past or even getting after me for getting off the airplane. <laughs> and though I step myself and though I mean it when I say that to you, I know as well as I stand here I'm going to blow it. But we need to be working on it. You see, it's a choice, a moment-to-moment -moment choice between pride and humility and getting our tongue off somebody or laying it on somebody. Let's be acutely aware of it. And maybe instead of just after we say it, we could begin to catch it just before we say it and bite it off. Because that's what we have to do. It's a tall order. To him who knows and does not, <laughs> to him it is sent. And it's dangerous to know this and not do anything about it. Unity cannot and will not come to pass until each one of us takes this personally. And if we don't, God will unite those who do. And he will sort out and sift out those who don't. Salvation is free. Unity is free. But it is not easy. Through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. Straight is the gate. Narrow is the way that leads to life. And few there be that find it. Now we could be those few, or among those few. We have that chance. We've seen it. We understand that it's there. What will we do? Oneness with God and oneness with man is purchased by blood, sweat, and tears. And we have not resisted unto blood yet against sin and against tail-bearing and against backbiting and gossip. And we cannot be unified as long as we continue that. We've studied <clears throat> in preparation for the conference some of the areas and the keys to unification. And you know what I found out? There's no easy magic formula. There's not one. The formula is back, or smiting back, carnal, normal, everyday, selfish responses. It's that simple, and it's that hard. Now, if we salute our brethren, our friends only, what reward is there? That's expected, isn't it? Can we keep it in the family? That's no answer. It has to go beyond that. It's beyond our little circle of family. If we don't look beyond that, it's easy to salute your friends. It's easy to hug your relatives and your or people that you obviously would love. <laughs> that's expected. And when you do what's expected, God says that's not enough. You've got to go beyond. Now, normally we wouldn't be expected even by man to forgive our enemies and send and buy lunch for our <laughs> litigious lawyer on the other side. But God does. He expects that of us. Maybe that's a silly example, but maybe it's not either. You can think of a thousand things that are easy to avoid. There's no reward really for loving your family. That's expected of you. There's a reward for making friends of people 
and making friends of enemies. James 1. I couldn't avoid the book of James entirely on this subject. James 1. I won't spend much time back here. I don't have much in the first place. But James 1 and verse 26. If any man among you seem to be religious, he seems like a pretty good Christian. Seems to be converted. And bridles not his tongue, but deceives his own heart, has these precious little treasures of hate and rancor and envy and bitterness tucked back in the back of his mind to call up at a time when he wants to get down on someone. If he seems religious, this man's religion is vain, worthless, foolish, not even worthwhile, won't get him into the kingdom of God. That's scary. Absolutely meaningless religion. You may be able to point out Daryl Henson's sins, past, present, and maybe even future. Do you know me well enough? You can point out my faults, my lacks, my deficiencies, and tell others about them, and lose your salvation as a result. What a waste. I can do the same with you and lose mine. Now let's go to Isaiah 66 for a moment. We'll wrap this up here pretty quickly now. Isaiah 66. <clears throat> and verse 2. For all those things as my hand made, speaking of the heaven and the earth, and all those things have been, says the Lord, but in spite of all his thrones, in spite of all the earth that he has created, all these wonderful works of God, all these things have been, says the Lord, but to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. For that I've created all these things, but here's what really turns me on. A man that is humble and trembles at my word. Now, we've heard some very hard sayings from God today. What's our reaction going to be? Are we going to hear this, let it pass, not do anything about it? What are we willing to pay for unity? In our marriages, with our children, among siblings, among brethren? This is what really gets God's attention. It's more important to him than all the heavens and the earth that he's made. Maybe we should give it some strong attention. Matthew 5 now. Matthew 5. Seeing the multitudes, he went up on the mountain and sat down. His disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. I'm not going to expound all these and give you all the little ins and outs of the definitions. We've heard those things before. I'm reading these to remind us of who we are and what we are and who Christ is speaking to, what he expects of us. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. On this one, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. We cry out for mercy for ourselves, as we saw in James 2. But what about others? Do we show mercy? Blessed are the peacemakers, the unifiers, the harmonizers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. This is who we are. This is who we represent as Jesus Christ who wrote these things. But these are how we should treat each other and those outside our own organization. Are they worse than us because they're not in this organization? No. Are they better than us? Not necessarily. Maybe. Are they lower than us? Are they laid a sin because they're not with us? Of course not. They are what they are because of their relationship with God, whatever that is, and with man. They fit hand in glove. And I'm certainly no better than them. We are to be one, as the Father and the Son are one. And they do not remember sin. They do not remember past mistakes. When I have sinned and I've repented of it, five years later, if it's still bothering me, and I bring it up, Christ's reaction is, what are you talking about? Why do you bring that up, Daryl? I got over that a long time ago. Daryl, get over it. Forget it. Move on. Why are you wandering around and feeling self-pity for the past? God doesn't believe in pity parties. Sorry to bust your bubble, but he doesn't. Those who worship God must worship in spirit and in truth. The greater church of God essentially has the truth. Now, we may disagree on little things here and there, or some fairly big things, but essentially all of it has the truth. And I agree with 99 plus percent of what John Wright and Boss says. I really do. And I'm sure he agrees with 9 or 10 percent of what I say. <laughs> now, on those areas where we might disagree or not see eye to eye, should we just split? No. We're going to love each other and work together over a period of time so that I can see things his way. Because <laughs> it's probably not going to work his way. <laughs> I love him. I don't spend a lot of time with him socially. I don't care. I spend a lot of time with him professionally. He's my brother. And he's my teacher. And if I disagree with him about something, I'll either come to agree, or I'll get over it, or he'll come to see it my way. Let's cover all the bets here. But we will get along. I am determined to get along with him, and I know him well enough that he's determined to get along with me. 
And he has more pressure and a bigger job than I do, in my opinion. <laughs> we don't have to split and divide, brethren, because we don't fully agree. The spirit has to go together with the truth. The attitude and the spirit have to be right. We can sort the truth out as we go. But pride and vanity says, I'm right, you're wrong, I'm gone. It's very simple. That's what's happening in the church. Because of vanity and pride and not being willing to forgive, forget, and move on. When God removes our sins as far as the east is from the west, what an unhuman reaction that is we realize how godly that is and how far we tend to be from that. Can we, brethren, put the past to rest? Can we really do it? Let's don't get tossed. Like I said, I've listened to sermons for 45 years. I'm tired of this. Let's get on with it. Let's get over it. Let's do what God tells us to do. Because if we really want to be unified with each other, and with our brethren in the greater church of God, we're going to have to face this. And we're going to have to overcome it. Now let's go. I want to look at about two more quick scriptures. May I'll make it three. Let's go to the book of Lamentations. Because this is probably the direst lament in the whole Bible. I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff in here that is just heartbreaking. And a lot of it's happening to you and me today in the church of God. Let's go to chapter 3. I am the man that has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. Now, we're it. He has led me and brought me into darkness, but not into light. Surely against me he has turned. He turned his hand against me all the day. I get on my knees. I cry out. God, forgive me. Show mercy on me. Bless me. Help me. And yet this goes on and on. And it's been going on for years now. And what it must mean is I haven't changed some of these things enough yet. Because the blessing of rains and the showers of blessings have not returned yet. That doesn't mean we're not being fed. I think we are. And there is food during famine. But it even says down here, also when I cry aloud and shout in verse 8, he shuts out my prayer. Sometimes he's just not listening because my attitude is not right and he can't stand me. He can't stand us. So he spews us. Now, if you take in your favorite food, do you spew it out all over the dinner guests? No, you lick your chops with glee, and you roll it around in your mouth, and you swallow it, and you ask for seconds. It's what you can't stand that you spew out. He's turned aside my ways, verse 11, and pulled me in pieces. He has made me desolate. Verse 20, my soul has been still in remembrance and is humbled in me. This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. Now there's a little hope, even in this strong lament. Let's see what it is. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Only split, only divided, only chastened, only spanked. We are not consumed. It is of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. Mine have, over the years at times, with different people. I've given up on people at times. I've written people off at times. Rather than really working at 
restoring them to me and me to them. Now, if I liked them, it was easier to do. But it's easy to write some people off. Notice verse 23. His compassions, his mercies, they are new every morning. Great is that faithful, is your faithfulness. Look what God does. Every morning when you get out of that bed, you have a new clean slate before God. Why does God say, don't let the sun go down on your wrath? Get over it. Now God says, don't let the sun go down on it, and we let 365 a year for 10 years go down on it. Don't let the sun go down on it. Because my attitude, God says, if you have a clean one every morning. What was that little prayer I heard recently? <laughs> where, the, where the guy was praying to God and he says, So far, God, today, I haven't backbit, I haven't gossiped, I haven't lusted, I haven't done hardly anything wrong. But now I must get up and I may have need more help. <laughs> But he gives us a clean slate every morning. Do you give me one? Do I give you one? God does to us. <laughs> and that's what he expects of us. What if I woke up every morning and said, Well, God hadn't forgiven me again. And I did this for 20 years in a row. I would begin to get pretty heavy. But I feel every day like I have a new chance with God. And brethren, I beg of you, give me a new chance with you. For I have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Oh God, have I ever. If we could do this for each other, we would have hope in our relationships. We would have hope that God would unify us. Now let's go quickly to Isaiah 65. <laughs> Isaiah 65. Here's what God is going to do. Excuse me, did I... Yeah, verse 17. Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered, nor come into mind. But be you glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing, and her people a joy. That's what God is going to do to his church, and when the millennium rolls around, he's going to do to physical Israel. Nothing of the past will be remembered, nor ever brought to mind. There is God's attitude about the past. He knows it's nasty. He knows it's bad. He knows we've suffered. He knows we've made others suffer. But he said it's all got to go away. He can't have happiness, harmony, peace, and unity until that happens. And he sent his son Jesus Christ to die that all that past could be removed, forgotten, obliterated. What an incredible sacrifice. No wonder, Paul said, Brethren, I count myself to have, not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, 
forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of Christ Jesus.